The subject for the evening talk is Beyond the Hindrances. In coming to an inner awareness, one, so to speak, takes upon oneself a formidable and challenging activity of confronting and, and dealing with the varieties and the vicissitudes of our own life, both physical and mental. And in that, of course, too, correspondingly, there is a, s- a certain and rather necessary step back from the world which we are living in and familiar to, the world around us, and one towards seeing what is happening within us seeing what is happening within us for the reasons that often what is within is hurting, it is suffering, there is pain. And two, when there is a dimin- even when there is a diminishing of pain and the obvious expressions of it, there are also variety, a variety of forms and expressions of, shall we say, Um, imaginative constructions which are taking place and projections and various processes which have a direct bearing, as has been referred to in previous talks, on the way that we look at the world outside. And because of the entanglement within these mental constructions and the world that we live in, we find it Um, difficult and sometimes exceedingly difficult to divorce and distinguish between what the fact actually is and what's our imaginative construction, what's our subjective interpretation. And we see that in that, therefore, that hindrances have a variety of forms and uh, expressions and varying degrees of um, substantiality to them. And one of the things in which, there is, in which, when there is a lack of inner awareness and lack of self-knowledge, we are particularly under the propelling power, we might say, of ignorance. Ignorance, not so much a lack of intellectual knowledge, though that may be important and significant, but an ignorance which in its propelling power gives a great reality to whatever is occurring. And thus when ignorance is fully mobilized, fully at work, so to speak, what is occurring to us, which we are classifying as hindrances, seems to be very, very real and, and have a substantial reality. When that substantial reality is given to whatever is occurring inside of us, one of the ways that that shows itself is that we tend to perceive into that experience, no matter how difficult it may be, permanence, that it won't go away, that it's something which is fixed, 
unalterable and unchangeable. So in other words, the greater the degree of blindness or um, ignorance which is showing itself, the more reality that we give and the more awesome and pressurising is the undertaking to deal with what we're experiencing. And it is ignorance which conveys and communicates that impression to us about what we're experiencing. So when there is a lack of awareness, therefore a lack of awareness being a light, shall we say, when there is a lack of shedding light upon what is happening, we are in the field of darkness, believing totally or to varying degrees about what is happening, is happening to me, I am affected by this, I don't like this, and that belongs, as I mentioned, to a field of darkness or ignorance. And therefore the shedding of light upon, the bringing of, a, bringing of awareness to, is the first and significant st- and major or significant step to taking it from how I imagine it to be and how real it seems to me to how it might actually be. So one is going from a projection into to direct awareness of seeing, seeing it for what it is. When we begin to see hindrances, blocks, tensions for, for what they are, one of the characteristics of it is that we don't believe it to be permanent. We don't believe it to be so substantial. We don't believe it to be our everlasting reality or whatever. And that's a sure sign that we're shedding light upon and we are seeing change, we are sensing change, we are becoming familiar with change and the recognition of that change has, relatively speaking for us, a certain liberating quality to it. Now one of the, in, in, as I say, with the ignorance and the darkness and the varying degrees of, of darkness, and particularly when it's very, very difficult, sometimes we can't see the light at the end of the, end of the tunnel. We can't see the way out of something. And that gives the feeling of being trapped within something. Within that circumstance or situation which is within our life, there are two important aspects of it, it seems to me, in our total relationship to life, if you can follow. In other, in other words, there is both the acknowledgement that if we are having a difficult period in our life in the present, it must have its causal relationships with our past. There must be past contributions which are influencing and affecting us in the present. 
and we may feel and it may be necessary at times as people do and in small but increasing number do explore the past open open up the past to see the way that it affects the present and sometimes that happens spontaneously let me give you an example someone gave a marvelous uh, um, illustration of, of it today the, per- the person um, uh, said a friend had done the retreats with me before that during this um, um, retreat both when she first saw me and at a number of occasions and during this retreat and in the talks she experienced feeling of anger towards me and she couldn't I mean there's plenty of very good reasons I'm <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and, but she couldn't see why, why, why this was arising, why, why there, was, there was the perception and there was a feeling of feeling angry and annoyed with and irritated about, but there didn't seem to be anything which really substantiated it. And then during the course of, during the course of one of the sittings, a recollection came that at, the, that at a previous retreat uh, a year ago, on the last um, day or the last morning of the retreat, there was something which was pressing in her mind, personal issue, a family issue, it was un, um, un, unresolved, and she wished to come to speak about it. And as so often happens for... Uh, Teachers on the last day, there's so much activity, and the interview didn't occur. And with it not with it not occurring, the memory of it and the understandable annoyance and irritation got retained, and it was held com- completely forgotten about over the uh, period of time. And yet the fresh contact was made, and the perception was there, and not remembering. That here was the original, an original cause for feeling anger in the present. And then, as sometimes it occurs, there's, there's a, just an insight of what it was. The situation dissolved, the present dis- anger dis- dissolved, and there was that fluidity which goes with it. But, unfortunately, it's not always like that. Only we wish that we only had to remember what the original was to ensure that things would go in the way in the present. So sometimes with these hindrances to you, or obstructions or, or difficulties that arise, we may have a great deal of clarity and knowledge and insight about what the factors are in the past which are affecting us in the present, but they in themselves may not be liberating from that obstruction, from that anger, fear, or whatever it might be. Sometimes too in our relationship to the past and to the present with facing of difficulties, one of the important things and equally as important is what is happening for us in the present 
And particularly the very common uh, syndrome, which a number of you have referred to on the retreat, and something which I notice, um, I hear about, it's, one has a feeling, and I think I'm writing, saying, but I'm hearing more and more of this as the years go by in retreat, and that is the reference to anxiety. It, that I hear, hear this so, so frequently these, these days. Of course, that may well have and does have some connections with our past, but that doesn't necessarily become the alleviation for the anxiety which is spoken of so frequently. And I wonder, therefore, sometimes whether it's not more necessary for us to address very, very, very directly our present. One of the things which I notice here with anxiety that it seems to have, as far as difficulty and the pain of it, often be connected to the experience of, a real and objective experience of, being under pressure. And that this being under pressure in one's life puts an active and real pressure upon one's emotional life. Sometimes the pressure is such that one is ignorance again, ignoring it. And so people who are um, serving others, people who are in, uh, in a field of activity from parenting to uh, 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 other fields of responsibility, social or whatever, may be so involved with all the pressure and dynamic that comes that the lower, the feeling life, the deeper inner life is being forgotten, being neglected. And then once the pressure comes off and one goes to do something else, sit, be with oneself, quietness, all the anxiety and this disturbance of one's feeling life begins to surface. And sometimes, of course, it's constantly surfacing through the pressure itself. Now, if one is experiencing that in one's, in one's life, it may be, I would say, it would, almost certainly is necessary to make quite substantial changes, to engage in some clear reflection on what am I going to do if I want to live in a reasonably integrated and harmonious way without stress and without pressure, what are the changes that I'm going to make? And basically the changes are such that they have to be that they give us more space. That, that one can see change. That one can see breaks in the pressure. That one is willing in life to be able to say no. Because if one ignores, again, more propelling power of the ignorance, if we ignore it, eventually we're no use for ourselves and we're no use for anybody else. Now what happens, of course, and as is experienced on retreat, that take away certain situations and certain safeguards that we have with regard to ourselves, it does seem sometimes that what one is experiencing here 
seems far worse than normal. That, 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 that there's a kind of intensification going on and one can't imagine that the dramas of the mind are, some, are, are um, the same as what goes on in the everyday life situation. And that may be because partly, sometimes, one is putting a lot of pressure on oneself. Here, one has bought the syndrome, you know, identified with the syndrome of living in pressure. Or it may be that in one's practice, the awareness is simply making it quite clear to oneself how much is being neglected. And it's actually showing, showing us that in truly no uncertain terms. So sometimes it seems that things are being escalated and they may just be really being brought out for us to acknowledge. And if one has had, if you've experienced over the days here, a, a, a real continuity of unsettledness or anxiety or trepidation or insecure feeling, generally short messages that in our connection with life we need to be making some reasonably specific, clear changes. And sometimes they don't have to be so dramatic, but something which gives affirmation to what one is experiencing. One is responding to that. In the meditations and, and working with, with our meditations and, and this, the focusing work which accompanies the meditation, that means that, that our, our practice experiences a situation, I've put it in a very, very um, reasonably simple way, that there is the world which is uh, around us, there is what is happening, and I'm speaking more particularly now of hindrances and obstructions and these things which we have assumed, and the relationship to them. When we are experiencing, experiencing these things, we tend, like with coloured glasses, look through the world in that way. Our practice is to work with these experiences. Now sometimes, and like I mentioned, for example, in the end of the talk yesterday, on um, the, the Heart Sutra, that <coughs> true compassion comes from emptiness. And in our meditations and in working and in focusing, focusing on our meditations and dealing and seeing more clearly, one of the things which begins to emerge from seeing more clearly is that there is a less of a tendency of mind to see everything in such a personal way. It's not that one is rejecting, it's not that one is denying, not that one is buying an ideology of no self or whatever, but rather is just the bare attention to, ah, this is occurring. So one hasn't withdrawn and detached oneself in any way from the life experience, so that 
feelings can arise. Ah, this is a feeling here arising and it passes. Here's a thought, it arises and it passes. Here is a mood arising and passing. Here is a fantasy which is arising and, and passing. Here is discomfort, it's arising and it's passing. And though in the seeing it doesn't mean to say that the arising and passing occurs in a clearly defined way that it just comes, just goes, just comes, just goes. But the giving of the light of attention to it helps us to really appreciate that the lack of true continuity and the presence of change, sometimes to the degree that we see change at the larger level, Sometimes we see it more refined at more subtle levels, sometimes extraordinarily subtle levels. And that seeing of change and seeing it more clearly, as I said, tends to take out some of the sense of the I, me and mine syndrome, which belongs to the tendency or the ignorance which projects into it and makes it me, I, me or mine. And so rather out of one's observation, as I say, rather than trying to make one's experience conform to scripture and uh, text in the Buddhist tradition, one begins to see more relatively the way things are. And so there's this famous passage in the text and in the, it's a question-answer and, and to some extent <coughs> this passage has and continues to be something of a major influence within the insight practice. And the question is asked, are things permanent or impermanent? And the response to it, impermanent. Those things which are impermanent, can that be said to be born and dying, coming and going? Can that that be said to be satisfactory or is it unsatisfactory? And the response is, this is unsatisfactory. And then the the question arises, that which is unsatisfactory, nothing can be held onto, nothing can be maintained, nothing can be supported, it's unsatisfactory. Factory. <clears throat> that which is unsatisfactory, can one regard that as oneself? Can one regard that as being true unto itself or itself or myself? And the response is one can't regard that as oneself. If one would regard one's feelings as oneself, when a feeling came, that would be oneself, and when it gone, you'd go with it. (laughs) So in our observation, in our giving care and attention to that, we begin to see much more, as it were, stripped of the imaginative interpretations of things and more towards just the bare, simple actuality. 
that bare, bare simple actuality means that in our, in our practice we are looking at all of those things which we're referring to as hindrances, as blocks, as obstructions. Out of, out of that greater awareness, when there's a fading in its organic way of the self-idea, as it were, in and through and wrapped around those events, it establishes a certain spaciousness. It establishes a spaciousness in such a way that it begins, when looked with care and sensitivity and warmth, it begins to give one a certain empathy, a certain interconnectedness, a certain appreciation and understanding of the plight that human beings are faced in and especially the plight that human beings fa- are faced in when they're under the spell of blindness and the ignorance, the ignoring of. So at times within our practice and within, within, our, within our meditation that the very working on one's, one oneself as just as a human being of countless human beings is truly, as is, is pointed out in a discussion group today, is truly a key for us to be able to see and to recognize how it is for all human beings, regardless of their background. So, seeing in impermanence and change as a conventional for all beings, Seeing the unsatisfactoriness and the insubstantiality and, and the somewhat unreliability within the field of life. Seeing that this can't be taking, taken as a personal thing, but it's rather impersonal. Not in a negative sense, but something which is common to all. That the clear seeing of that begins, in a, if we are seeing, begins to touch us more deeply. It begins to touch us in a way which begins to bring out of ourselves a response which is caring. Because this is the fact for human beings in the conventional mode of mind, thinking, living, behaving, responding. One can't help but begin to feel touched by this which is common to all. Now in this, and with our working, um, working on ourselves, still that isn't to go either far enough, spiritually speaking, nor deep enough. So being touched and bringing out a, out a response to life still means that we're still more clearly perhaps, but very much in the field of relative viewing, relative living, relative responding to life, in which, because we are looking carefully, we're certainly seeing change and unsatisfactoriness and uh, the lack of 
substantiality and selfness. We've been touched, we're still responding to life, but one must go deeper than that, and going deeper than that means seeing to these kind of construct this kind of view, these kind of constructions which we have towards life, and seeing particularly what aggravates and what aggravates, what keeps substantial, what has a tremendous imposition, and it's all that one can regard it really, on this world, mental world and outer world, is the field of language. Awareness of the field of language is not something for the academic only, for the scholars and for the philosophers and theologians. It's for, for any human being who is trying, endeavouring, inwardly and spiritually speaking, to discover the way things truly are. Not in a kind of objective sense, because the subjective will always have some influence on what one looks at through the organs, through the senses, through the mind. But seeing what the influence of language is, both as a divisive, as a separating phenomena, as given, even when it doesn't feel like it, a certain kind of quality or charge or view towards whatever is occurring, even when it's difficulty here, even when it's very factual at our conventional level. So one may speak of this item, and that item, and this item, and that item, and there can be a a validity in that. And one can say this item is changing, and it was coming and passing, and nothing to be clung onto. One may say that it doesn't have anything in of itself, it doesn't have a self-existence, it's born of conditions, etc., etc. But also to see how our relationship through language is to what we experience. And often the wish, the strong desire and wish in any kind of inner work to apply a label to define and categorize. And once we do that, we're beginning to build up an image, an impression, an idea about focusing around the word we are using. If you keep saying the word anxiety, it will eventually have enough charge there to be sufficient behind it to provoke anxiety. One will maybe have some uncomfortable feeling inside which is born of biological factors from time of the month to eating a McDonald's burger or something. <laughs> and, and, and there'll be an unpleasant sensation there. There'll be an association with, oh God, anxiety is coming on again. And the very word itself would create a stimulation. It would produce 
and start reproducing the suffering and the anxiety and the, and, and the uh, um, pain of it all. And, and as I say, with language and with concept, the influence of, of that has to be looked at. It, our language in our relationship to the world and our, also has to be looked at. There are some words in religious language which there is an immediate reaction to. There are some forms of words and language which are so dated none of us can relate to it anymore. And in this field with regard to the theme of the, the talk this evening, such words as obstruction, hindrances, problems all themselves, if they are used frequently, or whatever kind of words that you use in relationship to experience, very easily creates and separates it from all else. So the framework of the language and the typical reaction within the words that we use set the parameters around something. And in setting the parameters around something, we begin to create the concept of permanence, of selfhood, and create more suffering. So sometimes it's necessary and it's... And it's it is necessary and it's, and it's, val- and it's val- valuable to have no noting idea at all. No labelling of, no, interpre- no interpretation of, just bare experiencing. A truly bare experiencing in, su- in, such, a w- in such a way that whatever's manifesting and in showing itself is not in any way being regarded in the relationship to it as a proof about anything. It's not saying anything. It's something which is just occurring. And so the subjective thing about what it might be saying about you, or me, or life, or, or whatever, isn't being taken up as a truth. One is not going to create once the a truth under the under being or through being spellbound by the ignorance in any way which will create a truth about a certain experience. Whether it's painful and unsatisfactory or whether it feels blissfully enlightening. But one isn't going to to create the parameters around it. And if that idea is given up, that I- I- idea of blockage, hindrance, suffering, whatever it might be, and there isn't a buying into that, where is there any limitation? 
If the idea, the concept of this being something real and true and, and substantial, if, if that isn't there, if that isn't impressing in that, in that way, and therefore the idea of hindrance, a hindrance, is gone. Whatever is occurring is not seen anymore as a hindrance. It doesn't have that to it. That's to invest and attribute much more to it than what's actually there. If there's no hindrance, how can there be any looking for liberation? How can there be any wanting to be free? How can they be going from samsara to nirvana? How can there be any more idea of getting rid of? How can there be any place to go to? It has to pivot itself. For all of that imaginative construction of the mind to take reality, it has to pivot itself, it pivot itself on a premise. This is something, it's substantial, it's true, it's me, or it's affecting me, and it has to go. And because of that idea, deeply rooted idea, as it may be, all religion emerges out of. And if that idea and that false premise under the spellbinding influence of ignorance is pierced or is seen to, to see what it is, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to dissolve, there's nothing to attain, there's no path to walk and there's no measurability at all. And how can it not be to see, to see that? How can there not be compassion? How can there not be compassion? Not compassion, I, whoever the I is doing for you, but something flowing organically out of one's being. Because the myth of the reality of substantiality and all that congregates around it in the form of suffering the myth of it is seen through. How can there no, not be compassion in this world then? May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. 